0: This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. John Keenan.
1: And I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici.
0: We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction practices. How are you doing today, Sonia?
1: I'm doing really well. How are you doing, John?
0: Great. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about what we're going to do this week in particular?
1: So this episode is going to be a little different than our usual Instead of going over one article in depth, we're going to do kind of a lightning summary of our first 10 articles. So if you're a busy person and you don't have time to listen to all 10 episodes, you can just listen to this one. And if you want to know more, you can then download the original episode and enjoy all the journal clubby details. So this is going to be a roundup of episodes one through 10, and I hope that everybody likes it. We're going to try to keep it under 30 minutes. I don't know if we can do it, but we're going to try. You ready?
0: We can do it. All right, Which, let's
1: go. <laughs> All right. Episode one, the cardiovascular effects of alcohol. This was our first episode and we appreciate anyone who got through it because it was our first one and our first attempts. We reviewed a great paper titled Association of Habitual Alcohol Intake with Risk of Cardiovascular Disease. It was published in JAMA Network Open in March, 2022. This paper was unique, not just because of the conclusions, but because of the technique. It used something called Mendelian randomization, and this was the first time I had heard this term, but now that I know about it, I'm seeing it come up in a lot of other contexts. Actually, I was listening to a podcast on nutrition as I drove home from work today, and they were talking about Mendelian randomization in nutrition research. So it's a technique that's being used more and more. They used Mendelian randomization to set up a proxy for a randomized controlled trial comparing people based on whether or not they drank alcohol and then looked at their cardiovascular outcomes. Data was from the UK Biobank and the study included genetic and clinical information from over 370,000 people. We did think it was a valid study if you were happy with the initial assumptions inherent in the Mendelian randomization. So instead of randomizing people to drink alcohol or not, which would be considered probably unethical and a little hard to do, they figured people were genetically randomized from conception to have a tendency to drink alcohol or not. And they used that tendency as their sort of factor that patients were randomized to have or not. So the results of this trial showed that there were worse cardiovascular outcomes at all levels of alcohol consumption starting from zero, i.e. there was no level of alcohol use that was actually beneficial from a cardiovascular standpoint. This is important because previous studies had shown a J-shaped association with people who drank very little alcohol actually doing worse than people who were moderate drinkers. The adverse cardiovascular outcomes seem to become clinically significant at about seven drinks per week in both men and women. So this article totally changed my practice because now, I tell people that there is no level of alcohol use that is good for you, and alcohol does not help your heart as is sort of a myth in popular culture, you know, like red wine is good for you one glass a day or something. Turns out that is not true, and this study really confirmed it. I also tell my men and women that greater than seven drinks a week can cause cardiovascular problems, whereas before I would tell men that it was safe to drink up to 14 drinks per week. Now I tell everyone that seven is the maximum safe limit. So how about you, John? What was your take on this article?
0: Yeah, I think it was interesting. I think your threshold for what's considered safe consumption was just lowered if you read this and kind of bought into this Mendelian randomization that you were speaking about.
1: All right. Ready for article number two?
0: All right. Episode two was analysis of stimulant prescriptions and drug-related poisoning risk among persons receiving buprenorphine treatment for opioid use disorder. So this article was a retrospective recurrent event cohort study with a case crossover design derived from an administrative claims database. The study looked to determine whether prescription stimulants had an association with drug-related poisonings and buprenorphine treatment retention in 22,946 patients with opioid use disorder prescribed buprenorphine and experienced at least one drug-related poisoning. While in this study, stimulants were predominantly prescribed off-label, stimulant treatment days were associated with a slightly increased odds ratio of drug-related poisonings. On the converse, stimulant treatment days were also associated with a much larger 36% overall reduction in odds of buprenorphine treatment attrition. So while there was a slight increased risk of drug-related poisoning, this was overshadowed by the overwhelming improvement in treatment retention. You know, this article has really helped me in patient care. In the past, I think like many other prescribers, I have been somewhat hesitant to prescribe stimulants to patients with substance use disorders, even when an appropriate indication did exist. I think that knowing this in the appropriate patient with the appropriate indication and no contraindications, I think I would be more likely to prescribe a stimulant if it was appropriate to a patient moving forward, even if they did have substance use disorder treatment knowing that there is actually probably little harm based upon this trial, and it may actually improve not only their ADHD or their insomnia, but also improve their likelihood of treatment retention with substance use disorder treatment. How about you, Sonia? What would you take away?
1: I found that this article actually is the most useful of all of the ones that we profiled in terms of making clinical recommendations. I just have found myself recommending this episode of the podcast over and over again as people post questions on Facebook or ask, hey, is it? what do you do with your patients with ADHD who need buprenorphine? I'm like, huh, there's an article about that. And so this is the one I found myself recommending most to other people asking clinical questions. So I thought it was a great article. All right, ready for Power. number three? Yeah. All right. Episode three was titled Opioid Tapering and Mental Health Crisis. So This article was a little old. It was published in JAMA in August 2021, and when we initially recorded the episode, it was under a year old, but now it's going on a year plus old. It was titled, Association of Dose Tapering with Overdose and Mental Health Crisis Among Patients Prescribed Long-Term Opioids. This was a large database study from the Optum Labs data warehouse, and it included insurance claims information from about 122,000 patients on long-term prescribed opioids. The clinical question was whether there was an association between overdoses and mental health crises and tapering off the stable long-term opioids. We thought that the study was valid, but within the limitations of large data sets based on insurance claims. If you listen to some of our other episodes, you'll know that this kind of data has serious limitations. We also felt that the data set did not include most of the outcomes that our patients would find clinically relevant, only the major outcomes of overdose or hospitalization for a mental health reason. But a lot of other things, both good and bad, happened to our patients when they taper their opioids. There was a lot of unmeasured confounders as well, so we were not sure if the group that tapered off the opioids were the same at baseline as the group that did not taper. So While the methods we thought were valid, we felt that the clinical question was a little bit limited. The results showed that there were higher rates of overdoses, mental health crises, and suicide attempts in the time periods after opioid tapering. The risk was even greater for those who tapered more quickly. So that was the conclusion of this study. The article did make me a little more cautious about tapering patients off high-dose opioids, although I felt like there were enough significant holes in this data set that I was not convinced that opioid tapering was a net negative in all cases. And this was a very, I won't say controversial, but a much talked about article. And it definitely has led into the new CDC opioid guidelines, which I think were just released last week. So this was a very influential article. Do you feel that this article changed your practice?
0: Yeah, I think that um, the one thing I took away is, like you said, I'm more cautious tapering people off of opioids. I think, you know, I'm much less likely to taper just because they're on a high dose, more so, tapering for another indication would be kind of how I proceed going forward. And you're right. I think that the one thing is there's a lot of kind of missing data about here about why these patients were tapered. So, I think that that could potentially be really kind of important, confounding information that really might kind of also be lean to why those rates were so much higher in terms of overdose and mental health crises. But overall, I think it was a really good article and kind of puts that into perspective for the average practitioner.
1: And some of those holes were addressed in a subsequent article that we actually reviewed in episode eight. So we'll be getting to that in a few minutes.
0: Perfect. Episode four is a post-diagnosis smoking cessation and reduced risk of lung cancer progression and mortality, a prospective cohort study. This is a large multicentric prospective cohort study of 517 patients with stage one, two, or three, a non-small cell lung cancer who smoked at the time of diagnosis. And this sought to answer the question, What effect does smoking cessation have on the risk of lung cancer progression and mortality? In this observational trial, participants were enrolled between the time of diagnosis and initiation of treatment to annual follow-up, assessing vital status, tumor progression, events occurring after diagnosis, therapeutic procedures that occurred, and whether they continued to smoke. Participants were also linked to the National Cancer Death Registry in Russia to fill in missing data points and gaps. Remarkably, this trial did show an adjusted median survival of 21.6 months higher with smoking cessation patients than those that continued to smoke throughout their cancer diagnosis. I think that that is a remarkable number. So just shy of two years difference in survival for people that quit smoking after diagnosis. This article, in many regards, is probably one of the more practice-changing articles for me as a primary care physician on a daily basis. In the past, I've often kind of neglected or kind of opted out of substantial amounts of time spent on smoking cessations in patients with new onset lung cancer diagnoses, often feeling that, like, quote, the the barn's already on fire or the horse is out of the barn. And I also thought that maybe it caused undue distress and was probably more like a palliative measure to patients with this diagnosis that we're going to have a poor outcome the article really suggests quite the opposite. I now kind of view smoking cessation in newly diagnosed lung cancer patients as one of the pillars of treatment and should kind of be viewed just as important as getting them plugged in with radiation oncology, CT surgery, and medical oncology for a a multimodal comprehensive treatment plan for these patients. What do you think, Sonia?
1: Well, I agree with you. This was a great article. And I know from our health system, St. Max's Cancer Center actually used this article as the impetus for a system-wide smoking cessation and cancer patients initiative that sort of started when this article came out and is currently ongoing. So it didn't just change our personal practice, it affected our entire health system. And yeah, I would agree. I've definitely added smoking cessation counseling to all of my patients who are diagnosed with cancer, especially lung cancer.
0: This is also my favorite question now to ask the residents when I precept them in clinic is, you know, is, is whether or not it's time to talk about smoking cessation and their, their lung cancer patients. And you know, they love hearing about this article. And I think that often I uh, end up giving them a link to it at some point.
1: Yeah, it's, it's an important topic. And I think now, especially because we're doing more lung cancer screening, we're catching more and more lung cancer early. And the chance to provide the patient with a good outcome is much greater and smoking cessation is going to be part of that.
0: Definitely.
1: All right, ready for article number five? Yep. All right. This episode, episode five was called the clinical effects of medical marijuana cards. So this article had a lot of potential, but in the end, I feel like it didn't totally pan out with information that we could use to change our practices. So this was a randomized controlled trial, and in addiction medicine, we're always happy with randomized controlled trials because it's just hard to do that in addiction populations. It looked at whether getting your medical marijuana card improved your symptoms of pain, insomnia, anxiety, and depression. Those were the indications you could solicit your medical marijuana card for. The title of the paper was The Effect of Medical Marijuana Card Ownership on Pain, Insomnia, and Affective Disorder Symptoms in Adults, a Randomized Controlled Trial. It was published in JAMA Network Open, which as I look at this summary that appears to be our favorite journal, in March, 2022. The study included 186 patients who had requested a medical marijuana card and they were randomized to either get their card or wait 12 weeks before getting their card. Their symptoms of insomnia, pain, anxiety, and depression at 12 weeks were measured. And the study looked at how those symptoms compared in the group that got the card with that group that didn't. So basically there were people who wanted a medical marijuana card. They agreed to wait three months, 12 weeks, and their symptoms were measured before they got that card, but after like a three month waiting period compared to people who were allowed to go get their card immediately. We were pleased with the clinical question. But there were some significant questions about validity that plague all cannabis research. The first was that cannabis is legal in Massachusetts, where this study took place, and it is also expensive, as is getting your medical marijuana card. So many people in the marijuana card group didn't actually get the card and didn't even use any cannabis. And many people in the no card group actually did use cannabis, which they just purchased legally without a card. Also, since cannabis is available without a doctor's note, which is kind of what I think a medical marijuana card is, people would have been free to try it on their own. So the patients in this study were likely predisposed to see a favorable outcome with medical marijuana. Most likely they had tried it in the past. If they had tried it in the past and found it ineffective or unpleasant or had adverse outcomes, they would not have been seeking out a medical marijuana card in the first place and would have not even been in this study. So, and that's the problem with all medical marijuana research, I think, at this point. So the results showed that getting the medical marijuana card improves symptoms of insomnia as well as symptoms of subjective well-being. It did not have an impact on patients with chronic pain or depression and anxiety. There was also a worryingly high prevalence of cannabis use disorder, although much of that is attributed to tolerance as well as using the product despite harm, although that harm was not really specified. So patients did feel the product was maybe doing some harm to them, but it didn't say exactly what that meant. Overall, 17% in the immediate card group met the criteria for cannabis use disorder, though, which is pretty high. Also, 17%, again, of patients in the immediate card group had worsening of their anxiety. And that's important because so many of my patients say, oh, I need the marijuana for my anxiety. Marijuana is sort of thought of as a treatment for anxiety. But when you look at the side effects of cannabis, actually paranoia and anxiety is one of the main side effects of that compound as well. So it's not really a great treatment for anxiety. In terms of whether or not this article will change my practice, it won't really. I'll continue to tell my patients that while medical marijuana is likely not going to hurt them physically, using more of it can very easily lead to cannabis use disorder. I don't feel I can use the data in this paper to give patients the expected outcome for their symptoms if they try it, because it wasn't a randomized controlled trial of using marijuana or not. It was a randomized controlled trial of getting a card or not. And as I said before, a lot of patients who got the card never use marijuana, and a lot of patients who didn't get the card still use marijuana anyway. I could tell patients that it might help with sleep. That was the one outcome that was positive. However, in my practice, almost all of my patients who get a medical marijuana card are already using the product, and they get the card more as sort of legal protection or a way to obtain sort of clean and regulated product rather than having to buy it illicitly And they've really judged the risks and benefits for themselves. So I don't think it will really change my practice. How about you? Well, this article, did it make any difference in how you counsel patients or your practice?
0: I think that the biggest thing I took away from here was the fact that anxiety, depression, and pain weren't really substantially improved with marijuana, since that is probably the most common indication I hear my patients asking for information regarding this. It's interesting, that list of certifying conditions, it seems like besides insomnia, and there's also terrible rebound insomnia with discontinuation, it doesn't seem to really pan out reliably in, in the medical literature. It is interesting. I, I do actually have a fair number of people that I think are, are marijuana naive that ask me about marijuana for their symptoms of anxiety or or depression or pain or insomnia and and I think actually I actually have in my practice a lot of like 70 and 80 year old women that I think have been told this by a child that it would help them. And then we kind of talk through it. And I, I don't think many of them actually end up going to get their card, but they often seem very curious, which I think is, is something I always find a little bit amusing.
1: Well, I have a lot of patients. Again, it is that elderly group. And I do a lot of work with chronic pain and older patients, and they're often looking for something it doesn't have as many side effects as opioids or NSAIDs that they could use for chronic pain, and they've never tried marijuana before. And again, I tell them it's likely safe. They can certainly try it. And I see a lot of them trying it, but I see very few of them trying it more than a few times for those who are marijuana naive and who are coming at it from a diagnosis rather than coming at it from a, oh, I already use marijuana. What might be the reason? Let me pull one off this list.
0: Yeah. All right. So episode six was, I thought was really interesting. It's called Outcomes After Implementation of a Benzodiazepine Sparing Alcohol Withdrawal Order Set in an Integrated Healthcare System. So this is a very interesting retrospective. It's a quality improvement project, so not a true clinical trial performed at Kaiser Permanente, Northern California, Integrated Healthcare Delivery System. And it compared outcomes pre and post-implementation of a benzodiazepine sparing order set for alcohol withdrawal in 22,899 non-obstetric adults presenting in acute alcohol withdrawal. When they talk about this non-benzodiazepine or the benzodiazepine sparing order set, really, you know, it used a, a variety of other medications, clonidine, gabapentin, Depakote. I think if you took away one thing, gabapentin really was the, the most favored product used as an alternative to benzos. The results of this project showed that implementation of such a protocol resulted in a 17.4% decrease in use of any benzodiazepine during hospitalization for alcohol withdrawal, a decrease in mean total dosage of lorazepam used when benzos were used, increased use of adjunct withdrawal medications in lieu of benzodiazepines, and that compared with hospitalizations without order set use, use of this benzodiazepine sparing order set was associated with decreases in ICU care use and decreases in hospital length of stay. So two very clinically relevant patient and system-centered outcomes. I really am interested by this topic. Unfortunately, it's really not practice-changing for me, since I think most of us that practice inpatient medicine are Alcohol withdrawal management is really a system by system or institution by institution protocol driven. So I think unless your healthcare system adopts this, it's probably not going to be useful for the average person. Although if my healthcare system were to adopt such a protocol, I would definitely embrace trying this. I think ultimately, I would really like to see a true randomized controlled trial comparing such an order set to our classic symptom-driven benzodiazepine order sets that I think many other organizations use. But I think that I haven't yet seen that, but I would love to see it down the pipeline to let me know which really is the one that's going to kind of reign supreme in the long run.
1: Yeah, I I agree with you. That's definitely a hole in the research is an actual randomized controlled trial of a multi-drug order set for alcohol withdrawal. I mean, gabapentin has been pretty widely tested for alcohol withdrawal and come up really good. And like you said, this paper made me even more comfortable with gabapentin as a treatment for alcohol withdrawal, but there were no randomized controlled trials of multi-drug order sets comparing benzodiazepine order sets with non-benzodiazepine order sets. So we're waiting. If anyone does that study, we're here. We're ready for you. Yeah.
0: One other thing, I do feel like the predominant use of gabapentin that seems to emerge with with these trials It also makes me a little bit more comfortable with people with a mild history of withdrawal that are on gabapentin, treating them outpatient. It kind of almost is like another safety blanket that I I wear when I treat these people. And I feel a little bit more comfortable working with them in a non-detox facility for people that don't have a history of like serious alcohol withdrawal seizure or ICU stays related to their alcohol withdrawal.
1: Yeah, we always worry about giving people benzodiazepines to take in outpatient if they have serious alcohol use disorder. To do a symptom triggered home alcohol withdrawal with benzodiazepines. I just worry about safety. I worry about overdose. And I worry about that a little bit with gabapentin, but much less. So yeah, it makes you think about home detox as well. All right, ready for article number seven?
0: Yep.
1: Okay. Seven was treating opioid use disorder and polysubstance use. So I apologize to everyone. This article had so many different results. My tongue gets all tied up in knots just trying to go over them. So if it ends up being a little confusing and wordy, Don't blame me. That's just, there was so much data. That's how it ended up. So this paper was something we see in practice quite a lot about management of patients with both opioid use disorder and some other substance use disorder, excluding tobacco use disorder. Patients with polysubstance use disorder tend to engage less with treatment for their opioid use disorder, and they tend to have worse outcomes. So developing strategies to help them in treatment is very important. This paper was titled Comparative Effectiveness Associated with Buprenorphine and Naltrexone in Opioid Use Disorder and Co-Occurring Polysubstance Use. It was published in JAMA Network Open in May 2022. It was a large retrospective trial with a case crossover design, meaning every patient served as their own control, and they used an insurance claims database, including 180,000 patients with opioid use disorder. 48,000 of whom had some additional substance use disorder as well. So huge database. The clinical question was, are drug-related poisonings, which is another way to say overdoses, but some kind of poisoning different in patients with opioid use disorder who received buprenorphine or naltrexone compared to those who did not receive any medication for opioid use disorder? And what did this look like in the subgroups of patients who had an additional polysubstance use disorder? So really, this was a trial of the efficacy of treatment for patients with polysubstance use disorder. And by treatment, they looked at buprenorphine, injectable extended release naltrexone, and oral naltrexone. We thought it was a valid trial, of course, valid within the limits of a large database based on insurance claims data. The data was collected between 2011 and 2016, and so a lot has changed since that time, First, the availability of extended-release injectable naltrexone has really improved, and it's more available than it was when this study was done. So in this study, a very small subset of patients got that medication. Now, I think a larger number would probably get it. Also, 2016, which is when this study ended, is a time kind of before fentanyl. So the mortality data now for opioid use disorder is a little different. It's a more deadly disease now. Finally, 2011 to 2016, Many more treatment programs required total abstinence from all illicit substances to stay in treatment. So it was sort of standard to say, well, you have to be clean from all drugs if you want to stay in treatment. And you know, if your urine has cocaine in it, you're fired from your buprenorphine program. And that is not standard of care anymore. We definitely don't do that in our programs. And I think most addiction doctors don't do that anymore. So providers were less likely to offer treatment to patients with polysubstance use disorder. At this point, you know, we just really drive that point home. Buprenorphine treats opioid use disorder. It does not treat use of cocaine, methamphetamine, benzodiazepines, alcohol. It really only is effective for opioid use disorder. So those other disorders have to be treated separately. So the study had a ton of results. The first set addresses which treatment the subgroups with and without polysubstance use got. So the patients with polysubstance use were much less likely to receive medication at all. 47% of patients with opiate use disorder alone got medication, and only 30% of patients with opiate use disorder and polysubstance use disorder got medication. However, they were more likely to receive naltrexone as opposed to buprenorphine, both the depot and the oral, even though the overall was a small absolute number. Patients, as you might guess, with co-occurring alcohol use disorder were more likely to be treated with naltrexone given the dual indication for this medication for these two diagnoses. But again, overall, small fraction of the patients in absolute numbers. Then the study looked at drug-related poisonings. What I thought was most interesting about this was that for patients with polysubstance use disorder, they had fewer poisonings when they were on buprenorphine and deponaltrexone, but not oral naltrexone. The association held for patients with alcohol use disorder, stimulant use disorder, patients with opioid use disorder alone... Oral naltrexone had no protective effect, and in the case of opioid use disorder alone, the trend was towards more poisoning. So people who got oral naltrexone as a treatment actually had higher overdose or poisoning rates. The bottom line here is that buprenorphine works best to prevent overdoses, then followed by deponaltrexone. Oral naltrexone, not helpful at all. It might even make things worse final set of results addresses whether there is any protective effect of medication based on type of overdose. So the results I just stated before were for opioid overdose. Now they wanted to know if buprenorphine helped with overdose from other substances. So you have to delve into the supplemental appendix for this one, but buprenorphine and deponaltrexone were both protective against opioid poisonings, but buprenorphine alone was protective against other drug poisonings in both groups. Like the earlier set of results, oral naltrexone showed a trend towards more poisoning, although in this set of results, the confidence interval crossed one, so you can't say that it's a true result. So to summarize, buprenorphine is good at preventing poisonings with opioids and non-opioid drugs. Oral naltrexone is bad and may have led to more poisonings, and hardly anyone used debonaltrexone, and when they did, it worked okay, but not as good as buprenorphine. So that's my conclusion. It has changed my practice in one small way, which is that I no longer offer oral naltrexone, basically, to anyone with opioid use disorder. If a patient requests it, if they have a compelling reason to use it, I would consider it, but I would have to see some benefit above the average since it's basically been shown ineffective and might even cause harm. I don't really recommend it. I continue to encourage buprenorphine to all patients with polysubstance use disorder if there's a component of opioid use disorder and I definitely don't make abstinence from other substances a requirement for being in treatment. So that was a lot. John, do you feel like this article changed your
0: practice? I don't think it changed my practice. I think it really kind of told me, I think what I've always kind of seen in clinical practice, that buprenorphine tends to work best. I am naltrexone tends to work okay, although it tends to be not utilized that often due to the requirements of how you have to initiate it requiring a period of abstinence. And oral naltrexone just does not seem to work for opioid use disorder. At least that's kind of clinically what I've seen. And I think when I've seen other studies, it seems like it's really kind of oral naltrexone for opioid use disorder seems to only have kind of snippets of data, mostly in highly motivated individuals like previous trials on physicians that are impaired, but not kind of the general population.
1: All right. Ready for article number eight? Let's do it. So, this was our most popular episode so far. And the article was called Comparative Effectiveness of Opioid Tapering or Abrupt Discontinuation versus No Dosage Change for Opioid Overdose or Suicide for Patients Receiving Stable Long Term Opioid Therapy. Long title there. Published August 2022 in JAMA Network Open. It was kind of a follow up paper to the one from episode three about overdoses and mental health crises following opioid tapering. So it was a great article, it addressed some of the concerns we had about confounding factors that were present in the other paper. So the basic clinical question is, does tapering or stopping opioids on long-term stable patients lead to harm? In this study, the authors really tried to limit their patients to just those who had no medical reason to taper their opioids, and thus account for some of the confounding seen in the other papers. It was a retrospective study. It used a large insurance database with information from close to 200,000 patients on long-term stable opioids. They tried to exclude anyone who would have had an indication to taper, i.e. any sign of harm from opioids, and they excluded all patients who had a strong indication not to taper, like having cancer. So really, they were left with patients who they were defined as stable, and if they were tapered, it would presumably have been for no good reason other than... Guidelines recommending they be on lower opioid dose. They used pharmacy filled data to determine if patients were tapering their opioids, and then they looked at the primary outcomes of overdose and suicide. And by suicide, it was either an event or a hospitalization for, like, suicidal ideation or some sort of code related to suicide. We thought this was a valid trial if you accept the limits of insurance database research, which is based on provider coding, which does have some serious accuracy issues. The authors were very careful about their patient selection, their definition of stable opioids and tapering, and their follow-up. One of our concerns, though, about validity is not about the care that they took to define their question, but about the outcome itself. We felt that this study did not include outcomes of being on opioids or being off opioids that our patients find most clinically relevant. Well, of course, they find suicide and overdose relevant, and those are the most severe complications of tapering. There was no data on things like increased pain, less severe mood disorders, disability, diversion, development of opioid use disorder or illicit opioid use. There was also no data on adverse outcomes associated with being on long-term opioids and things we've seen in practice, you know, intractable nausea and vomiting constipation, depression, hypogonadism, falls, withdrawal, if you lose access to your medication. There's a lot of complications of being on opiates that were also not captured in this study. So we thought the clinical question as asked was valid, but it just was a limited set of conclusions. The results showed that opioid tapering in these stable, low-risk patients was associated with a small absolute increase in the risk of overdose and suicide events compared with patients who were left on their stable dose. The difference was driven almost entirely by suicide events, and there was no difference in overdoses in the tapered and non-tapered group. And you could take, make two conclusions from this. One is that opioid tapering did not lead to more opioid overdoses. The second was that staying on opioids did not lead to more opioid overdoses because we also worry that our long-term stable patients will somehow transition to illicit opioids and then overdose. So that also did not happen. So as long as they were prescribed, their prescribed opioids. So will this paper change my practice? It definitely makes me a little more comfortable that my patients on long-term stable opioids with no risk for developing opioid use disorder will likely not go on to overdose if I continue the opioids. But it did not address many of the clinical outcomes of both staying on opioids and tapering opioids that concern my patients. So it doesn't provide me with most of the information I need when discussing this issue. So how about you, John? Do you feel that this paper added anything to that paper we profiled earlier in an earlier episode? And has it changed your practice at all?
0: I think that it definitely, I'm a relatively younger doctor, but it's kind of beat into our heads about you know, that these medications have long-term harms and we should be trying to get people off them if possible. It does make me feel much more comfortable kind of maintaining stable kind of low to moderate dose opioids on patients that have been on these for a period of time without any adverse effect, feeling that I'm not doing them any long-term harm, as long as you're kind of appropriately monitoring for, for adverse effect. So that's kind of been helpful. It kind of makes me feel better about those, those types of situations. Otherwise, it's it's basically kind of a similar feeling to the first article.
1: All right, ready for episode nine?
0: Yeah, episode nine is percentage of heavy drinking days following psilocybin-associated psychotherapy versus placebo in treatment of adults with alcohol use disorder. And I think that we were really excited to cover this article since psilocybin really is getting a lot of mainstream media press at this point. And it certainly is after marijuana, probably the second most common Currently, illicit substance or non-legalized substance that patients ask me about. So, this was a double-blind, randomized clinical trial of 95 participants aged 25 to 65 years of age with a diagnosis of alcohol dependence, and they had at least four heavy drinking days during the 30 days prior to screening. And they wanted to answer the clinical question: Does psilocybin-assisted treatment improve drinking outcomes in patients with alcohol use disorder? relative to outcomes observed with active placebo medication. So in this trial, participants were offered 12 weeks of manualized psychotherapy and were randomized to receive psilocybin versus diphenhydramine at two 8-hour medication sessions at weeks 4 and 8. The primary outcome for the study was the percentage of heavy drinking days. While this trial was not very, like, quote, blinded, with more than 90% of participants and therapists guessing the randomized intervention in each period correctly, Use of psilocybin was apparently very safe in this trial. While there were many more adverse events in the psilocybin group, they tended to be minor and self-limited, with headache being the most common adverse effect. Interestingly, all events that were classified as serious adverse effects occurred in the diphenhydramine group, and these were all related to alcohol use. So basically, untreated alcohol use, medical complications like pancreatitis, Mallory-Wise tears. In terms of the primary outcomes of the study, they did show a statistically significant decrease in percentage of heavy drinking days, percentage of drinking days, and mean drinks per day between screening and initial intervention at week four in all study participants. That means every participant in the study prior to receiving the intervention, either the psilocybin or the diphenhydramine, had substantial decreases right out the gate. Between weeks 5 to 35, participants receiving psilocybin had a statistically significant lower percentage heavy drinking days than those receiving diphenhydramine with a mean 13.8% further reduction. Participants treated with psilocybin also had moderate to large reductions in several categories of drinking-related problems at week 24 and 36. My biggest takeaway from this article, you know, outside of psilocybin is that psychotherapy and counseling, they really work, right? The largest reductions that occurred in this trial in terms of drinking behavior occurred prior to the initiation of any drug administration. So really, it was the the therapy that seemed to have the biggest bang for your buck, which is interesting because I think many patients that I I counsel about this, they, they seem to be the least interested in this aspect of their care. In terms of the psilocybin intervention, I actually, I think I have more interest after this article than before. It does appear to be very safe. I really thought it was interesting, the mechanism of action of psilocybin, where it basically uh, increased susceptibility or kind of vulnerability of a patient to the suggestions that were given during counseling. And I really think it's an interesting area of continued future research. Uh, It's not to the point yet where I'm ready to recommend this as some mainstream treatment. I also think when patients do ask me about it, I like the fact that I can talk about the fact that it's often paired with psychotherapy or counseling. So if that's something they're currently resistant to, they may open up to that idea. So that's been kind of useful. Overall, interesting, not yet like a mainstream recommendation for me.
1: Yeah, I I agree. Of course, psilocybin, I think it's not legal where we are yet, but it just was kind of happy. You know, so much of addiction medicine is super depressing and you just read study after study about how all your patients are going to die. And so, at least it was nice to read a study where people actually got better and kind of enjoyed the experience. So, I don't know. It was a relief to read a kind
0: of happy research study. Yeah. What about our last article, Sonia?
1: All right. Almost done, everybody. It's been a wild ride, but here we are at episode 10 on buprenorphine tapering. So, this article was called prescribing characteristics associated with opioid overdose following buprenorphine taper. It was published in JAMA Network Open in September 2022. So the clinical question was, among patients receiving buprenorphine maintenance therapy and undergoing a taper, what prescribing characteristics are associated with opioid overdose? It was a retrospective cohort study using an administrative Health database data from Ontario's single-payer state health system. It used pharmacy fill data to find adults who were on stable long-term buprenorphine and subsequently tapered, and examined characteristics of those tapers and looked at which characteristics were more associated with overdose. So it included about six thousand patients who tapered their buprenorphine, and again, main outcome was overdoses after buprenorphine taper. They also looked to see if patients returned to buprenorphine treatment, started methadone, or started prescription opioids. We thought it was a valid trial if you understand the limits of insurance claims data. If you want to listen to the episode, which was episode 10, we do talk a little bit about the validity of this kind of data in more detail. We thought the clinical question was well-defined and the outcomes were good. However, the trial could not include one very relevant outcome to us, which was the return to illicit drug use after buprenorphine taper, because of course that's not captured in insurance data. The results were really interesting. It is the first big data set I've seen describing what happens to patients after buprenorphine taper. Within the 6,000 patients, two-thirds of them experienced either an overdose, a return to buprenorphine treatment, or started methadone or other prescription opioid. So only a third of the patients did not. And of those third, we don't know what happened to them. They may have returned to illicit use. They may have stayed drug-free. They may have left the area. Who knows? But only a third of patients did not either return to treatment, have an overdose, or end up on another prescription opioid. The authors then looked at the characteristics associated with overdoses within 18 months of taper. And there were four main results. Shorter time to taper was associated with more overdoses. So those on buprenorphine for less than a year had more overdoses when they tapered. The faster taper rate, tapering by four or more milligrams at a time was associated with more overdoses. There were more overdoses with more frequent dose step-downs because I hypothesized that that time right after a dose step-down is more vulnerable. And the duration of the taper itself, like whether you spent six months tapering, a year tapering, that didn't seem to make any difference in the overdose rate. They also had data on treatment reentry, and that showed that longer and slower tapers were associated with lower rates of treatment reentry. So is this going to change my practice? I don't know. It's not going to make a huge difference. I do help patients taper off their buprenorphine, and I really try to let them determine the rate of the taper based on their own needs and comfort. However, I feel I can tell them that in general, being on buprenorphine for longer than a year, tapering for at least six months making fewer dose decreases, and stepping down less than two milligrams at a time, all those things were associated with less overdoses and less return to buprenorphine use. I can also tell them that over half the patients in this study returned to buprenorphine treatment. Given the high risks after taper, as demonstrated in this study, I also have added counseling regarding safety and relapse to my tapering plans, so I make sure patients have good recovery support, that they have naloxone, and that they know some basic safety features of using opioids safely if they were to return to use to try to prevent overdose. So John, how about you? Do you think this paper is going to make a difference in how you counsel patients?
0: You know, I think I love this paper because I think it in some regards, it kind of validates, I think, what a lot of us have kind of anecdotally said for a long period of time in terms of what tricks you have for tapering someone off buprenorphine, kind of longer duration After a year of treatment, kind of maximizing success, small step downs, spread apart, constant reassessment. I think these are all things that we've kind of been doing. It kind of just gives us some data that that's actually the most important things we should be doing. The risk of relapse and kind of the contingency management, or not contingency management, but like the the relapse management, I think that's a good idea to kind of add for your patients that you might be saying goodbye to that are at a point where they want to get off of buprenorphine and they feel that they're in a good place.
1: Well, that's it. That's our first 10 episodes. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included on a future episode, you can email us at addictionmedicinejournalclub at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter or Facebook at AddictionMedJC. Our original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy. Our audio editing was by Angela Olfest. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation. Have a great day.